Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31 is our text for today. This is our 19th sermon in a New Testament uh, study of the book of Romans. Today's message is 37 handwritten pages, and the title of today's message is Fide the Hungry. Fide the Hungry. Turn to Romans chapter 3 as you do. Remember that God loves you, and listen now to the word of the Lord. Romans 3, verses 27 through 31. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you will grant us faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the overarching topic or theme of the message today is the means of salvation. Uh, Our outline today is going to come directly from the text, and that is three questions which appear in the text. Uh, Point number one and question number one comes from verse 27, and that is, what becomes of our boasting? Point number two, or question number two, comes from verse 29, and that is, is God the God of the Jews only? And then our third point, or the third question, comes from verse 31, and that is, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? As we close out Romans chapter 3 today, I want to go on record that I am one who believes that the material that is found in the last five verses of Romans chapter 3 in actuality belongs in or fits better in Romans chapter 4. Now you do know that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not inspired. In the year 1227, that is when chapters were divided in the Bible. The Old Testament was not divided into verses until the year A.D. 1448, and the New Testament was not divided into verses until the year 1555. So you understand that the division of chapters and verses is in no way uh, inspired. Now, usually they do help us, and they do help us have an outline for the text, and they always help us find the passage in our Bibles. I mean, could you imagine if we didn't have these numbers and we were trying to look and find these passages just sort of, uh, you know, it's kind of in the middle or whatever. So they are helpful in that way. But sometimes these numbers disturb the flow of an argument by stopping the chapter too early or as in this case today, in my opinion, um, they stop it too late. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that our verse today, our verses today, point forward to chapter 4 and belong more in the content of chapter 4 than they do in the previous text. But if we are to do a thorough study of the passage, we are going to have to look at what he also said previously. 
And so let me paint in broad strokes by telling you that in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes the case that Gentiles are guilty sinners before God. And then in Romans chapter 2, he makes the case that Jews are guilty sinners before God. And earlier in chapter 3, he's going to make the case that there is none righteous, no, not one. But somehow, out of this fallen race of unsaved, guilty sinners, God has chosen to save or to justify some people. Well, how did he do this? Well, he did it freely, by grace, as a gift, received by faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the gospel. Faith in the fact that God publicly killed his son in our place so that we could be saved. And in so doing, God simultaneously demonstrates or shows that he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as we get to our text today, Paul is going to shift gears and he is going to concentrate 100% on the topic of faith. And from 327, which is where we pick it up today, all the way through the end of chapter 4, he is only going to talk about faith. There is nothing in there about the atonement. There's nothing about redemption. There is nothing about the righteousness of God. There's nothing about the cross. There is nothing about the blood. Oh, the only reference to the mechanics of our salvation is in chapter 4, verse 25, the last verse of, of chapter 4, which says that he was delivered up. Whereas... From 327 all the way through the end of chapter 4, you are going to read the word faith or believe or believing about 18 times. So you see, this is our new topic. What I need you to do right now is to put your thinking caps on and to look at your Bibles. And I want you to notice how our text today, which is 327 through 31, how it is the heading or the preface or the summation of what we are about to study in chapter 4. So look at your Bibles and you will notice in 327 that boasting is excluded. When you get to the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 4 verses 1 and 2, it's going to tell you that Abraham had no reason to boast. Also, Look at your Bible in 328. It says that justification is by faith apart from the works of the law. When you skip down to chapter 4, verse 3, you're going to see that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Here's another example of how our text today is a preface or a heading of all of chapter 4. In chapter 3, verse 30, it says that the circumcised and uncircumcised are united by a common faith. Well, when you get to chapter 4, verse 9, there is blessing for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And so what you have today are seed thoughts about faith that are going to grow into a full harvest in chapter 4. The reason that I point this out is so that we will be gearing our minds to be thinking about faith. And faith is a really important topic for us today to study, especially in this day where gospel has been so muddled and mixed up with works, there needs to be a fresh vision in our hearts and in our minds that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. So 
Our subject today, and for all of chapter 4, is going to be faith. Now, the style that Paul uses, we've talked about this before, is that of a diatribe. And what is a diatribe? Well, it is an imaginary conversation with an imaginary friend. And Paul is talking to his imaginary friend, who without a doubt is Jewish, and would have objections to what Paul is teaching. And so what Paul does, he anticipates the questions, he anticipates the objections, and he answers them in such a way so as to silence his opponent. And so the diatribe questions, they're going to serve today to be the structure for our passage. Now, those questions will be our three points, and question number one and point number one is this, what becomes of our boasting? Romans 3.27. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. Do you know that some forms of boasting are actually commendable in the Bible? And that some forms of boasting are absolutely ridiculous. I came across a form of boasting this week which was really, really ridiculous. My uh, daughter-in-law Molly, her her brother lives in Winona, Minnesota, and they're about to have the county fair in Winona, and he sent me this text. Take a look at this. The 2023 Winona County Fair will be from July 12 to 16. Parking on the grounds? Well, the season pass is 10, but the daily pass is $5. Please attend the ribbon cutting for the new bathrooms on Wednesday, July 12 at 4.15 p.m. Honey, get in the car. Let's go. Hurry. We're going to miss the dedication of the new bathrooms. How do you accentuate or boast about the fact that you have new bathrooms. I mean, I'm sure you need bathrooms, but is that something to boast about at a county fair? Well, you know, in Scripture, as I said, some forms of boasting are actually acceptable and commendable in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says that we can and should boast in the Lord. Galatians 6.14 says that we are to boast in the cross of Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 2 says that we are to boast in hope of glory. Also in the book of Romans chapter 5 verse 11, we are to boast in our reconciliation with God. Paul boasted in 1 Corinthians 9.15 that he could preach the gospel free of charge. And he many times boasted in his converts. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 Paul boasted in having a clear conscience, 2 Corinthians 1.12. He boasted in having apostolic authority, 2 Corinthians 10.8. He boasted in good behavior, Galatians 6.4. And he boasted in his suffering and in his weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.9. And these are not all of the references to good boasting from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He was constantly boasting, but these were the things that he was boasting about. On the other hand, Paul tells us that there are some illegitimate reasons for boasting, and he tells us a few of them, and I'll share some of them with you. We don't have time to cover all of them, but he says that it is really bad for you to boast in yourself, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, 
what do you have that you did not receive? Meaning receive as a free gift. If then you did receive it, that is receive it as a free gift, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So for us to boast in our achievements when it was just a free gift is bad. You know Ephesians 2.9 that says that our salvation is not of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Paul says that it is bad to boast in interfering in someone else's ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. We do not boast beyond the limit, beyond limit in the labor of others. It is bad to boast if you are compelling Gentiles to be circumcised. Galatians chapter 6, verse 13. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know the story of the man who had his uh, father's wife and they were boasting that they had Christian liberty and that they could just live with all of this uh, licentiousness. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. I think I've given you uh, sufficient examples from the scripture where you can see that there are some examples of good boasting, there are some examples of bad boasting. Here in Romans 3.27, this is an example of extremely bad boasting. Paul is referring in Romans 3.27 to boasting of your own good works, your own righteousness as a means of being saved, justified, declared righteous, and made right with God. That is very bad and that is very wrong. It is self-congratulations that we have earned our way into God's good graces. And Paul wants to know what becomes of that boasting. In light of the fact that none is righteous, no, not one, in light of the fact that God is the one that justified, the answer is, according to Romans 3.27, that that kind of boasting is excluded. It is done away with. It is out of the place, out of place. It is ridiculous. Now, please note that the Jewish people were very privileged and that they were given things that other people were not given. They were given the law, they were given the covenant, they were given the patriarchs. They were at an advantage over the Gentiles. And it is not wrong for them to rejoice and to be thankful for those blessings. But please pay attention and and please listen to what I am about to say. There is an enormous difference between boasting about what you have freely received and boasting about what you have worked for or earned. Here's an illustration. I think that it is acceptable and there is nothing morally wrong with being born into a wealthy family. I I think it is perfectly acceptable for a young person to say, I am very pleased and I am happy about the fact that my parents had enough money to send me to a good school. I am thankful. I am very blessed. I am humbled. I I easily could have been born into another family. I made no contribution to where I was born and where I am now being educated. This is all a free, free gift, but I enjoy it, and I'm happy to have it. I don't think that that is wrong. It is another thing altogether for that student in that prep school to say, look at me. I'm something, do you see where I go to school? Have you seen my grades? Have you seen my friends? Have you seen my friends' families? Have you seen my friends' families' houses? I am 
objectively better than those public school or homeschool kids. Look at me, I am something. Now that is the kind of boasting which is based upon pride and arrogance and delusions of grandeur that God resists and that God opposes and it should be excluded. It is to be excluded. Well, in the same way, boasting about being saved is a self-contained contradiction because by definition, salvation is by grace and not by works and there is no room whatsoever for boasting in our salvation. Yet, I find myself sometimes and this is, this is, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation, I find myself sometimes looking at those that are not saved, and I sometimes think myself to be better than them. I should not do that, because there is no reason to think that, but that is the way that we are as prideful individuals. By definition, salvation is by grace and not works. And Paul spells it out with a few follow-up diatribe questions. He says that boasting is excluded, and then he asks the question, by what kind of law? In other words, is there a law which tells us that boasting is bad? Now, the word law there does not mean the law of Moses. It doesn't even mean all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. But the word law there means principle, a, a general use for law. Is, is there a principle or a standard or a system or a method or an order or a rule? What, 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 is the, what is the principle upon which you base the fact that we should not be boasting? What kind of principle excludes or, or does away with boasting? Well, you would look at that and you would say, well, off the top of your head, you would say a standard of works of boasting is eliminated. Uh, the law uh, gives requirements, and since we don't meet up to those requirements, then therefore boasting is eliminated. And Paul knows that that is going to be your guess, and then he says, no, uh, you're wrong. It's not by the law of works, but it is by the principle of faith. What is the difference between the law of works and the law of faith? Well, the law of works is a merit system which says you achieve and you advance. The law of faith says this is not about me and, and it's not in any way having to do with me at all. It is based 100% upon the one that I am trusting in and not my own efforts. Colin Cruz puts it this way. Jewish boasting is excluded not only because of their failure to obey the law, but also, please pay attention to this, but also because the law requires faith. Do you understand that keeping the law is not just doing what the law says, but the keeping of the law requires that you have faith. End quote. Our boasting tongues before God are not silenced by a work-your-way-to-God system. They are silenced by a lack of faith. Well, why is that true? Notice what it says in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, let me read for you a rather lengthy quote. In fact, I would say maybe this is the longest quote that I've read so far in going through the book of Romans. Anytime you read a quote, and here's what happens as a preacher, I'm reading the quote, I'm looking down. When I look up after having read the quote, 
I see this. I understand it is a good time, generally speaking, to daydream. See if you can just jump on board with what is being said here by John Murray. This is an excellent description of the law of faith versus the law of works and that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Good quote, good quote. Giving you plenty of rest. Here we go. <laughs> Justification by works always finds its ground in that which the person is and does. It is always oriented to the consideration of virtue attaching to the person justified. The specific quality of faith is trust and commitment to another. It is, ex it is essentially extrospective. So you, you, you hear about the person that is introspective? That's, that's us looking within. Faith is extrospective. It is looking outside, extrospective. And in that respect, it is the diametric opposite of works. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith looks to what God does. Works have respect to what we are. It is the antithesis of principle that enables the apostle, that's the apostle Paul, to base the complete exclusion of works upon the principle of faith. Only faith has relevance within that gospel delineated in verses 21 through 26. And if faith, then it is without works of the law, end quote. Let me see if I can put it to you another way. When Martin Luther, the great reformer, translated this text, and you do know that he translated the New Testament, in 1521, he translated the entire New Testament in 11 weeks. I think we would have trouble reading it in 11 weeks. He translated it in 11 weeks. And when he translated Romans 3.28, he chose to include the word alone a-L-O-N-E, alone in his translation. And I think that he was correct to do so. Here was Luther's translation. A man is justified through faith alone apart from the works of the law. Now this made the Roman Catholics furious. Why? Because Catholics believe that we are justified, made right in the sight of God, by faith plus works. And what Luther did is that he emphasized what Paul was teaching, and that is that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And if it is by faith apart from the works of the law, then it is by faith alone, A-L-O-N-E, sola fide. Thus our title today, fide, faith in the Latin, Fide, the hungry. In other words, if you are hungry for salvation, what do you need? You need faith. Believe in Jesus. Faith. Don't try to please God by doing good works. Simply believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Believe that God loves you. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And believe that if you will believe or call upon the name of the Lord that you will be saved. And so, point number one, I hope you follow the logic of it, and that is that boasting is excluded 
by the principle of faith because one is justified by faith apart from works and that leaves no room for boasting. Which brings us to point number two and question number two which is in verses 29 and 30. And the point is this. Is God the God of the Jews only? Look at verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now please keep in mind, it's really important that Paul's diatribe conversation friend here is a Jew. And the Jews thought themselves to be morally superior to the Gentiles. God was their God. One rabbi wrote, and I quote, speaking of God, I am God over all that came into the world, but I have joined my name only to you, Israel. I am not the God of idolaters, but the God of Israel. And so Jews would delight in the fact that God was exclusively their God. And since God was the God of all mankind, in that he created everyone, that's fine. You were made by God. You can claim God in that sense. But if you want to have a relationship with God, what you need to do is you need to become a Jew just like I am a Jew. You need to become a proselyte. You, I'm, uh, uh, you need to move over to Judaism. And if a Gentile wanted to know God personally, he had to go through all of the rituals and all of the ceremonies to become a Jew. And Paul's question in this verse is, do you believe that God is the God of the Jews only or the God of the Gentiles? And the answer that he gives is from their law, from the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Here... O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The oneness of God. There is one God who exists in three persons, but let's just start with this. There is but one God. And Paul's argument is that since there is only one God, therefore there are no other gods. And since there are no other gods, there is no other way of salvation. And he, the one God, has one plan of salvation. Not one plan for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. In verse 30, he's saying that, that, that you will be justified, whether you are Jewish or whether you are a Gentile, by faith. Now, the, 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 you see the phrases there, by faith or through faith. There's no difference between the two. It's just stylistic in verse 30. But his point is this. The means of salvation does not differ from Jew to Gentile. One God, one plan of salvation, faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, and that's it. Monotheism, the belief in one God, is what marked the Jews out as a separate and unique people. And that very doctrine, which Paul knew that they believed, is what Paul is using to prove that the Jews don't have a special or separate plan of salvation. One God, and he saves whom he saves one way by faith. By extension, and, and this, is, this, is an, this is an extension which is very indirect, but I think that it does apply. 
in a church which is made up of so many ethnic groups, because I don't think too many of you are struggling right now about this Jew-Gentile thing, but, but, but as I'm, if you're standing where I'm standing right now, you're looking at a lot of different kinds of people. In a church made up of so many different ethnic groups, the question of preference and comfortability with one another needs to be addressed. It is not wrong biblically, it is not wrong morally for you to maintain your culture. But that must never, under any circumstances, ever come into play with respect toward your love for one another, your fellowship with one another, or your faith. Is God the God of us all? Yes, he is. And he saved you regardless of where you were born or whether or not you take off your shoes when you go into the house or whatever. He saved you the same way that he saved everybody else. We can never say, well, my spiritual condition can only be understood and shared by someone of the same background as me. Now, when you do that, what you are doing is you are denying the oneness of God. God is one and he has saved us all in the same way. We have the same Bible, the same Christ, the same blood, the same plan of salvation. And we, who have united here in faith and covenanted with one another, are of one body. And your unity with someone in this church who is of a different ethnicity ought to be greater than someone even in your own family or someone who is a friend of yours who is the same ethnicity as yours. We are one body in Christ saved by one gospel. Therefore, we ought to be united in that gospel and that ought to be reflected in our fellowship and in our comfortability with one another. Which moves me on to point number three, the third question, which comes from Verse 31, and that is, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Uh, Verse 31 says this, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Here's the answer. By no means, no can do. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Two questions need to be asked as we take this verse apart. First of all, what does it mean to overthrow the law? And secondly, what does it mean to uphold the law? Overthrow the law, uphold the law. First of all, to overthrow the law, um, here's what it means. Do you, well, first of all, do you understand why Paul even asks this question? Because if Jews and Gentiles are both justified and made right with God apart from the work of the law and only through faith in Christ and Christ alone, then what is the use of the law? Why would we Jews even, like, what what would be the purpose of even having it around? Does it serve any purpose? Should we not just overthrow it? To to overthrow it means to nullify it or to invalidate it or or just chuck it. There's There's just no need for it. And you would expect Paul, based upon everything that he said up to this point, to say, yes, you have understand me, you've understood me correctly. That's right. In light of justification by faith alone, it means that the law is now overthrown. Get rid of it. But Paul says the exact opposite. He says, nope, that's wrong. By no means. Hall and oats, no can do. On the contrary, 
we uphold or establish the law, which means we need to answer the second question, what does it mean to uphold or establish the law? Well, once again, I'm going to call on you to put on your thinking caps because there are three options that the smart guys have come up with, and I think they all have some validity, uh, but I'll just tell you up front, I think that the third option is the best. But here, here are the first two, and they, and, they, and they have validity as well. What does it mean to uphold the law? Well, it means the law there would then mean the entire Old Testament, uh, Genesis through Malachi. And what that law would be doing is testifying to the Gospels. Uh, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify me. It's, it's, the purpose of the law is to point forward to Christ. And I would say 100% that's true. I wouldn't deny that. In fact, I think I say that almost every week. However, I don't think that that fits the context here. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. The second way of looking at it, what does it mean to uphold the law? It means that the law is there and we need to keep it around because it's useful for the purpose of condemning sinners and showing them their guilt and their need for Christ. Now once again, I would say that that is true. In fact, that is exactly what it says earlier in chapter 3 verse 20, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. I'm not going to deny that in any way. But once again, I don't think that that's what he means here by saying we uphold the law, meaning that we keep the law around so that we can use it to convict sinners. It's a true statement, but I don't think it fits the context. The key to this is the context. And even if you look at the wording, I think that this will help unlock the mystery. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? The word this. There's something special that's going on here. Whatever the answer is, it has to do with faith. Now, this is going to get somewhat convoluted, so stick with my my train of thought here. Option number three is that the law does what the law does. The law makes commands. That's what a law does. By definition, the law makes commands. And we are expected to keep those laws. Now, if it is true that a law makes commands and we are to keep that law, here's the tricky part. How in the world does this work in a passage like this? Does it mean that we are still obligated to listen to and obey the law of Moses? No, it doesn't mean that, because if it meant that, it would contradict everything else in the passage. Does it mean that Paul is anticipating something that he's going to write about later in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, which, again, there's there's validity to this, but if you go over to chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, you'll see that there's a sense in which the law is fulfilled through us loving one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. It is theoretically possible that Paul is anticipating what he is going to be talking about 10 chapters away, but I think it is really unlikely. I think there's a better answer. Once again, what is this passage talking about? What is all of chapter four talking about? It is talking about faith. And here's what I think the answer is, and I think it is mind-blowing, and I think it is revolutionary, at least it is in, in my little head and in my heart. I think it means that when we place our faith fully in Christ, we have completely and thoroughly satisfied the law and the demands of Moses. Let me say that again. I think that what it means to uphold the law is to trust in Jesus fully and completely. And when you have done that, you have completely fulfilled the law of Moses. I gather it not only from the context, but I gather it from what Paul says over in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Do you know what that is? That is the gospel, and the gospel is of first importance. You understand, the law in and of itself couldn't do this, but what the law couldn't do, God did in sending his son, and his son comes in the flesh, and he dies for sinful flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh. Why? Why? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How then is the law fulfilled? Is it by us doing the law? No, it is by us trusting in the one who did fulfill the law. It is fulfilled when we believe in him. It has to do with faith in Christ. I think that that answer fits the context. That is the overarching theme of the passage, faith in Christ. And so, when you put it all together, what you've got in point number one, in question number one, is that boasting is excluded by the principle of faith, and that is faith alone in Christ alone. And point number two, one is justified, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, one way, that is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And point number three, the law is not overturned, but the law is established by us having faith alone in Christ alone. You see, when you do your very best to keep the law of God, and that's commendable that you would try to do that, but just know that it's not pleasing to God. But, but, but when you do your very best to keep the law and you are not able to uphold it, all you do is prove that the law is good and that you are not. But when you say, whoa, man, oh wretched man that I am, woe is me for I am undone. I can't keep the law. You know what I am gonna do? I'm going to put my faith and my trust in the one who did and I am totally casting myself upon him in that sense, you are upholding the law. I think that's right. I know it sounds crazy, but, but I think that's how it works. 
when you stop striving to keep the law and trust fully in Christ, that is when and only when you are fulfilling or upholding the law. Six observations as we close. Number one, you, you see back in verse 27, he talks about boasting that is excluded. Be careful not to boast in your heart. Be careful not to boast in your heart. Now, I suppose I should say a word to people who are like boasting verbally, but I think the only people that do that are people like children will do that. They will talk about how good they are or how well they have done or very narcissistic, self-absorbed, rude, impolite, socially not with it people will talk about their own goodness. I, I don't think you are in danger, most of you, of like talking about your own goodness. What I'm talking about here and what I'm trying to warn you against is, is not the prideful, rude boasting which you would actually engage in verbally. I'm talking now about what would happen within your own heart. Uh, what I spoke about earlier, the danger, and I, I, I don't know what's going on in your heart, but the danger of you looking at another person and thinking yourself to be better than them. The real danger comes within the privacy of our own thoughts. We think highly of ourselves. We boast within our own thoughts and how deserving we are and how worthy we are of God's love to be accepted by him. Uh, we become like the Pharisee in the temple who is praying and he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And then, and then, he, and then he reads off his resume to God. Now, I think it's very dangerous to think highly of yourself. Even if I were an atheist, and let's just say there's no God. If I were an atheist, I think it is very dangerous for people to think highly of themselves. It's, it's, just, it's just not a good way to work your way through society and through life. But supposing that there is a God, and I do believe that there is one, it is excessively dangerous to think highly of yourself before God. It is more ridiculous than a ribbon cutting for a toilet at a county fair. It, it, it is inaccurate. It, it, it's just insane. Because if you think about who you are, how did you get here? Who's keeping your heart beating right now? Who's giving you the air that you're breathing right now? How is your optic nerve functioning right now? How are you able to hear the words that I am saying and process them in your own mind? How are you able to walk? How are you able to think? How are you able to cry or to reason? Everything that you have has been given to you by God. So to think yourself as something special, it's, it's, it's just, first of all, it's inaccurate but it also prohibits you from receiving God's grace because God resists the proud. He hates it. I mean, he hates it with all of his heart. And so if I can simplify it for you right now, I think the reason why people who have heard the gospel yet do not come to Christ for salvation, don't come to salvation, the primary reason is this. They don't think they have to. They don't go to Jesus because they don't think they need him. Unbelief. It's a horrible sin. And so, the point is, please do not boast within your own heart, but humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Point number two. Rest. 
Ah, rest in Christ and by faith enjoy your salvation. Stop working. Start relaxing. Start enjoying. Start resting. You know, evidence, and I'm speaking to saved people right now, evidence that your faith is not strong is seen in the fact that you worry about the judgment day. And you think, how am I going to get through? After everything that I've done, how am I going to get through that? Or, and or, when you view God as cold and distant, you don't draw near to him, and the reason you don't draw near to him is because you are pretty well convinced he wants nothing to do with you. Are you saved? Yeah, I'm saved, but really, he'd rather not see me right now. Now, you can say that you are trusting in Christ for the totality of your righteousness, and that's a good thing to say because that is theologically correct. But when you, as a saved person, worry about the judgment, it means that you are not fully trusting in his grace this hour. Now, I'm not saying that you're not saved. All I'm saying is that the realization of faith alone has not yet hit you in a practical way. So for years, Anna and I were told, hey, if you want to go on vacation and have a good time, go on a cruise. And so, you know, we resisted for a while, but then we finally decided, all right, we'll give it a try. So here we are, it's 1995, I'm walking onto a cruise ship for the very first time. I somehow got separated from Anna, and I walk onto one of the decks, and I see all this food. And I'm, I'm pretty hungry. Um, in those days, I was pretty hungry all the time, in fact... <laughs> Right now, I'm pretty hungry. But, uh, but, but here I am. I'm standing there, and I'm looking at all this food. And, and man, they're, 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 there's hamburgers and fries, and there's this big array of food. But I'm looking, and I'm like, I'm not seeing any prices anywhere. And I turned to the guy who was standing beside me, and I said, um, how, much, like, how, much, how much are those hamburgers? Like, how much does that cost? And he said, like, are you serious? I said, yeah. I said, I'm, I'm hungry. I'd like to eat. He said, pal, you have already paid for all of this. There, the, the, there's no price tag because it has already been paid for. And when that happened, the, the liberty that came over me and the, the confidence, now you should see me and how bold and confident I am to eat without hesitation. Friends, you're standing before God and you're, you're tentative and you're sheepish and you're saying, what, what would I need to do? Like, how much would it cost for me to get close to you? And it's like, pal, it's been paid in full. Eat all you want. Enjoy. You say, well, that seems arrogant to have such boldness before God. No, that's not arrogant at all. It is faith and it is confidence in his love. And he loves it and he is pleased with that. Let me bring it to the human level. Think about your relationships with other people, particularly people that you love. And I would say this is seen most in in parents loving their children. If you love someone... You really love them, and you, 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 you have sacrificed for them. You know that you want them to know that they are loved. How do you feel when they are constantly tentative about their status before you, or when they 
question your love for them or when they run from you or when they are distant from you and they assume that you are angry with them. Likewise, God has told us that he loves us. He's shown us that he loved us. He does love us and he delights when we trust him and enjoy his love. Dig into the buffet of God's love. That will delight him greatly. But when you put your eyes on yourself, you will always feel tentative about the judgment. When you put your eyes on yourself, you will always feel tentative about getting close to God. But when you look at him and what his son has done, you can rush in with confidence. You need to rest in that. God is pleased. Let me give you a test. When do you think God is more pleased? When you try your hardest to obey him or when you simply trust Christ as your righteousness? The answer is antithetical to everything in this world, but the answer is the second one. God is more pleased when you trust in Christ as your righteousness than when you strive to obey. Which brings us to observation number three. Preach the gospel in the same way to everyone. Now sometimes you need to supply more information to some people than other, others. But it's, at its very heart, the essential elements of the gospel apply to Jew and Gentile, young and old, male and female, smart and dull. There's one God, he has one plan of salvation. I once knew a man who was a pretty wicked sinner, he got saved. He was a, he was a, he was a character. He was a, he was the janitor at the first church I worked at in Georgia, and um, he got radically saved. And someone said, "Tell me, how did you get saved?" And his response was, "As far as I know, there ain't but one way." Uh, and that's right. Uh, there ain't but one way. And so, since there's one God and one way, preach the same gospel to everyone. Number four. If you add works to your faith, then you really don't have faith. If you add works to your faith, then you really don't have faith. You see, saving faith, by definition, Martin Luther got it right, is faith alone. Elvis Presley used to wear a lot of jewelry, and he would wear a cross, and he would wear a Star of David. He was asked, why do you wear both of these? And he said, I don't want to miss heaven on a technicality. Well, okay, I'm sure he's making sure that he gets all of the bases covered, but, but going before God is not spread betting. You don't manipulate him in that way. Don't say to yourself, well, I, I want to get to heaven, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my trust in Christ, and I'm going to do good works, and I'm going to make sure that I have the sacraments and benevolence and church involvement and the devotional life and sorrow for my sin and everything. I want to get all these things covered so that God will accept me. No, there ain't but one way, and that is faith alone in Christ alone. And when you add works to your faith, you do not actually have saving faith. Closely related, number five. The more you trust in Jesus, the more pleasing you are to God. You want to please God? Trust Jesus more. The more you trust in Jesus, the more pleasing you are to God. You see, you uphold the law by placing your faith in Jesus who fulfilled the law. So do you want to please God? Rest in Christ. Nothing I love more than holding a toddler when they are about to go to sleep. Because A, they're not that heavy, and B, 
when all of the muscles in their body relax and they are just sort of there hanging on you, it is the most delightful feeling in the world. Why? Because it is one of complete and absolute total trust and rest. You know what God likes? He loves it when we just rest in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yes, you should obey and sacrifice and work for the church and read your Bible and evangelize. But the one thing above all others that God delights in is just that you believe in Jesus. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He walks across the Sea of Galilee. He gets to the other side. He's about to give the bread of life discourse. And he is asked this question in John 6, 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God. We want to do the works of God. And Jesus gives this answer. John 6, 29. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. You know when you're having a party at your house and you get that guest and you know the guest that I'm talking about, the guest that comes in and right away says, what can I do? How can I help? And immediately they go in the kitchen and they start to work. If you want to be loved by your pastor, be that person. If you want to be loved by God, walk into the house and say, where's Jesus? I just want to sit at his feet. It's not the doing that impresses God. It is the delighting in his son that pleases him. And the more you rest in him, the more delighted that he is. Why? Because he is most delighted in his son. Which brings me to the final point. Fide the hungry. Those who are hungry to be saved need to be fide. They need to have faith in what is that. This is for the unsaved. You're looking for a million things to do. Well, I'm just here to tell you today there's nothing you can do to gain God's favor. Believe in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, John 3.16. You do remember that God loves you, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's the gospel, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so today... Don't be looking to do a million things. Just put your trust in Jesus. Faith alone in Christ alone is salvation. All right. Three down, 13 to go, which means what? Oh, it means we're getting there. The Father in heaven, I do pray that you will please grant us faith. For Lord, that pleases you. Faith in your Son, Lord, that pleases you. Give it to us, Lord, so that we might please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.